the Federal Reserve will have to act in a timely way to head off uh, inflationary consequences of a very big supply of liquidity. I think they understand the problem, and I hope and believe they will respond at an early date so you don't get the kind of market reaction. Tell me what I Hello and welcome to Planet Money. Today is Friday, December 10th. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. That was Paul Volcker. You heard at the top. He's the former Federal Reserve chairman. Today on our show, a giant stone coin on the bottom of the ocean helps us understand this very basic question. What is money? But first, the Planet Money Indicator. From um, me. From you. Jacob Goldstein. <laughs> Today's Planet Money indicator is $38.7 billion. That was the U.S. trade deficit for October, according to new numbers out today. In other words, once again, we spent more on stuff made elsewhere than we sold to elsewhere by $38.7 billion. <laughs> That's right. And, of course, the U.S. runs a trade deficit every month. We've done that for years now. But the surprise this time was that the trade deficit actually got a little bit smaller, largely because our exports grew. We sold more stuff. And, in fact, exports were the highest they've been in more than two years since before the world economy fell apart. Woohoo! What's the world buying from us? Uh, you know, it's lots of different stuff, actually. If you look on the list, you see, you know, industrial supplies and materials are way up. Uh, I actually have the list. I actually have the Planet Money Indicator. Industrial supplies and materials are way up. We have foods, feeds, and beverages are up. And, you know, this is sort of encouraging, right, because it's easy to fall into believing this meme that the U.S. doesn't make anything anymore, that we're all just, you know, sitting in front of microphones trying to entertain each other for a living. But when you dig in, you remember that, yeah, okay, the stuff we touch every day, clothes and a lot of electronics, we don't make so much of that. But it's big, heavy industrial stuff, capital goods. We're actually still pretty good at that as a nation. Okay, Jacob, uh, on the topic of big stuff, onto the giant stone money. So this giant stone money, we found out about it actually because we bought this tiny little gold coin a few months back. And we've been using it for this reporting project and thinking about gold. And, and in doing this, we keep coming back to this very basic question. What is money? Uh, you know, we used to use gold and now we use the dollar, which, of course, is this very abstract thing and really is only valuable because of this unspoken agreement where we all say, yeah, dollars have value. So there probably is no place on Earth that gets at the mystery of money better than the island of Yap. So this is the place economists think of when they want to blow their minds about money. Hundreds of years ago, Yap had this crazy form of money, giant stone disks with these holes in the center. And we read about this in a book called The Island of Stone Money, which I have here from 1910. And the book is – it's basically an explorer's account. Here I'm going to read you from uh, this part where he's uh, describing his rough arrival by sea and the island sort of shrouded in fog and there are reefs all around. He writes, Our situation was like a fever dream wherein vague but fatal dangers threatened. Then, of a sudden, the dense fog lifted completely and the land seemed verily to rise out of the sea and we found ourselves directly in front of the very entrance with the channel of deep blue water almost running out to meet us. 
Well done. I feel like I feel like I'm back in 1910. Yeah, the book has all these really long sentences, but it's it's actually quite funny in parts. It, it feels really like it's written about another world, but from another world. Yeah, it's not it's not the dry, boring academic uh, anthropological accounts. Yeah, that these that days. definitely had not been invented yet. Uh, so the book describes Yap uh, as as you might guess, you know, coconut groves and beaches and thatched buildings, but everywhere all over the island, you see these huge stone discs. So we found this guy who has been to Yap a, a lot more recently, Scott Fitzpatrick. He's an archaeologist and an anthropologist at North Carolina State. I mean, even today, it's sort of, it's sort of hard to get there. Um, you know, once or once or twice a week, they've got flights that pass through there um, from from Guam to Palau usually. Um, and if they run into fuel shortages today, like they have been when I've been out there, you can't land there at all. And so there might, you know, a couple of weeks might go by before you can actually get there unless you, you know, have some way of uh, getting on a boat and doing it. But even that is pretty, you know, extreme. So we talked to Scott about Yap and about the giant stone money, about where it came from, about what it teaches us about money. But let's start at the beginning. He says it all began hundreds of years ago when this Yappies navigator took what was probably a canoe over to another island where he found something really nice. Well, oral traditions talk about um, a Yapis navigator uh, named Nagumong who traveled from Yap to Palau. And Palau is about 250 miles south, southwest of Yap. And they talk about this navigator going and finding this milky white crystalline stone, which is, which is limestone. And Palau has an abundance of that. So Nagumong finds this strange, beautiful thing. And it's not like his first thought is, hey, I'm going to invent money. He's just thinking, you know, I'm going to carve some beautiful fish out of this stone. But remember, all he's got is this little canoe. And according to the story, he looks up at the moon one night and he thinks to himself, you know, a big piece of stone in the shape of the moon, that would be a lot easier to bring back to Yap than a great big stone fish. So he carves this big round disc out of stone and then he puts a hole in the middle of it, probably so he can stick like a branch through it and maybe roll it back to his boat. So he brings the stone back to Yap and the people go crazy. They love it. Pretty soon anybody who is anybody wants one of these stones. And, you know, money often starts out this way, like gold coins. Before we had gold coins, you know, gold was just something that rich people and kings kept around and they made like, I don't know. What do they make? Like out a of? crown, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's a king, right? Yeah. <laughs> a, you know, but before it was money, it was just something that people liked, and and that says you're rich, right? You're like, rich. hey, I'm the king. I got gold. So so anyway, the people of Yap they start sending lots of expeditions over to this other island. People are going out in these little boats and bringing back these huge stones. Some of the evidence that that we've looked at and trying to estimate, you know, how how big of a stone could a bamboo raft actually move during, you know, prehistoric times. Um, we're probably talking about, you know, not in excess of two meters. How, but how heavy would that have been? Well, um, it's on the range of four to five metric tons. So it's it, even one that size is pretty big. And you have a number of pieces of stone money in Palau that have been found at sites that were abandoned um, that are, you know, three, three and a half meters across that would have been seven, eight metric tons. So that's about the size of two small cars. It's pretty big. So, David, I just let's pause to reflect here. You have this pre-industrial society. You have these guys carving these giant stone discs that are taller than a man, putting them on these tiny little rafts and taking them hundreds of miles across the open ocean. This is terrifying to me because looking at that map, I would be afraid to leave Yap for fear that I would never be able to find that little tiny <laughs> dot and never be able to get never home mind again. The stone. Yeah. But they do this. They do it over and over again because... You know, the stones are really pretty. They don't have gold or silver on the island, but they do have these nice shiny stones. 
you scrub them, they're really beautiful. Uh, just kind of this milky, crystalline white. And I've seen a few of these if they're, you know, really cleaned well and they're out in the sun. Um, they'll almost they'll almost blind you. They're so bright and uh, and, and shiny. So you would imagine there were these big, beautifully polished, round stones, coins outside everyone's house. Yeah, yeah. And it would have been a very striking scene, I think, um, just the light reflecting off them and dozens of them uh, being in front of, you know, whatever whatever structure it was. It would have been very, very nice to see, I think. So in our daily lives, we essentially take for granted that money exists, whether it's gold or whether it's dollars or whatever. But money is a human invention, and it's something you see people invent over and over again in different places. So at some point, we don't know when, the people on Yap realize what almost all societies realize. They need something to store value. They need something that everyone in society agrees you can use to pay for stuff. And like many societies, the people of Yap, they took the thing they had that was pretty and hard to get, the thing that was their version of gold. And they decided these giant stone discs were going to be money, even though they were giant and stone. (laughs) So a piece of stone money, it was it was really valuable. It wasn't like you would roll one of the big ones down to the corner store and buy some fish. I mean, it seems like for day-to-day stuff, they would barter or maybe use shells. But for big stuff, special occasions, you would use stone money. I mean, you can think of it like a $10,000 bill. In oral traditions, they talk about, um, for example, a couple getting married and uh, their family members or friends might give them, uh, you know, a certain number of, of pieces of stone money. Um, if somebody was in real dire straits and they were, you know, something happened to their uh, crop of food or they were running low on provisions um, and they had some stone money, they might trade uh, those for um, for food or for help. So let's get back to this question of what is money and see how the stone money holds up. Now, economists actually have a three-part definition they use for money. Uh, Part one is money should be a store of value. So you couldn't, for example, use coconuts because coconuts will rot. So stone money definitely meets that one. We can check that one. The second is usually it has to be a unit of account. And here things get a little slippery for classifying these stones as money. Unit of account means there's broad agreement that there's a specific value attached to it. And it wasn't like people priced things in stones, like, hey, you want to buy that canoe? That's three stones. On the other hand, some stones were clearly worth more than others. There were bigger ones or some famous guy went and got it. It might be worth more. So I think you can give stone money sort of a half check mark on unit of account. All right. So we got one and a half checks so far. The third item on the list is money should be what economists call a medium of exchange, which basically means something you can use to buy stuff. Uh, One economist who was writing about the stone money said you need something to be storable, recognizable, divisible, and portable. So for storable and recognizable, yeah, giant stone discs are storable and recognizable as hell, right? A divisible, that one, it actually doesn't work. You cannot, in fact, break a giant stone disc in half and have like half as much money. That doesn't work. And then we get to portable. So, I mean, remember, one of these things can weigh as much as two small cars or something, right? And this is where something really profound happens. The people of Yap decide that if you give somebody a piece of stone money, you don't actually have to give it to them. Here's Scott Fitzpatrick. They often talk about the stone themselves not not changing hands at all. Um, in fact, most of the time they wouldn't, just the sheer amount of labor it would take to do it. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because on the one hand, like these are very con- 
concrete forms of sort of, of money, you know. But it also very quickly becomes abstract just because of their size. So they don't actually move it in financial transactions. Uh, they just say, okay, it's yours now, <laughs> even though it's outside my house. Right, right. And and, and the, the really interesting thing about this whole process, I think, too, is that everybody knows whose it is. So, okay, so you can imagine, you know, everybody sees the stone and, and knows somebody owns it. You know, I know Kestenbaum's stone is the one over there by that tree. But as it turns out, you don't even have to see a stone for it to have value. There's this story that one time a crew of workers was bringing back this great big piece of stone money back to Yap on a little boat. And just before they got back to Yap, they ran into this big storm and the stone ended up on the bottom of the ocean. But the people, they get back to Yap and they tell the story and everybody says, no problem. That stone money, it's still good, even though it's sitting on the bottom of the ocean. So somebody today owns this piece of stone money, even though nobody's ever seen, you know, nobody's seen it for over 100 years or more. Does that seem kind of amazing to you, though? Yeah, yeah. I got it was a huge one. It was giant and more beautiful than anything. But unfortunately, I don't have it here. Man, that is the definition of abstract money. (laughs) Yeah, it really is, isn't it? If we haven't quite blown your mind yet, consider this story from that book, The Island of Stone Money. Yeah, so the book tells this great story. It was around 1900, and Germany had control of Yap. And the Germans, being Germans, decided they wanted some really good roads built. And the Yappies had these paths that they thought were totally fine. But the Germans said, no, we would like you to build some real roads. And the Yappies said, no, what we have is fine. So the Germans decide they're going to find the chiefs unless the work gets done. But that's a problem, right? Because uh, you're going to find them... In their local currency, which are the big stone pieces of money, they're gonna you're gonna take them away, and what are you gonna do with them? They're not good in Germany, and it would be a huge hassle to do anything with them. And, and the book even says the Germans wouldn't even have had room for the stone money in their colonial buildings on the island. So, so after thinking about it for a while, the, the Germans get an idea. They decide they're gonna go around and paint black crosses on some of the big pieces of stone money, and they'll tell everybody that a black cross meant the stone was now owned by the government. And so, okay, here I'm going to read from the book again. He says, this instantly worked like a charm. The people thus dolefully impoverished turned to and repaired the highways to such good effect from one end of the island to the other that they're now like park drives. And then the end of the story is that the Germans go around and they scrub off the X's and they're returned to the chiefs. So, Jacob, when, you know, when we're reading these stories, you know, they seem kind of funny. And then at some point you realize... Oh, you know, I use stone money all the time. I mean, if I write you a check, right, what actually changes in the world? In the physical world, essentially nothing, right? Like the numbers in your bank account change a little and the numbers in my bank account change a little. But it's essentially like there is some stone on the bottom of the ocean that you used to own. And now that stone belongs to me. Even though we have this much more advanced financial system, money, it's basically faith in something that you can't see. There's mutual agreement that there's something out there in the world that has a certain value. It's like trust plus invisibility. Equals money. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that, that, David, this insight you and I have sort of arrived at, Milton Friedman, one of the most famous economists from the 20th century, he had this same idea when he thought about Yap. He wrote a paper in the early 90s where he, he compared the stone money of Yap to the way things worked in Europe and the U.S. under the gold standard. And what happened was in the, in the 20s, European countries started 
shipping lots of gold to the U.S. And then in the early 1930s, there was this moment when France starts exchanging dollars for gold. And it was this huge deal. There were headlines about France draining the U.S. gold supplies. But what was actually happening in the physical world at that moment was some guy went into the vault at the New York Fed and took some gold out of one drawer and moved it to another drawer. And that meant that gold, that stone at the bottom of the ocean, now it belonged to France. Gold bars, stone money, you know, it's all shiny. I think just a really good analogy to stone money is diamonds, you know, just the rarity involved. All the, all... But it would be like if, if you got engaged and, and you gave your, your bride a diamond ring, but you didn't actually give her the ring. You said, honey, you know that diamond out, out down the road? That's yours now. I know. I would have liked to have done that, I think, at some point. <laughs> Or, or here's here's a ring, but it's made of stone and it weighs three tons. I'm not sure you can all the way right. Right, right. I, at one point, I think I jokingly told my wife that um, she could have this piece of stone money. She just wouldn't be able to see it unless she went to Yap as sort of her her wedding present, and she didn't really think that was very funny. <laughs> she, she, she was tired of Yap jokes by that time. Yeah, I think so. So talking about all this stuff from a hundred years ago, it made us wonder what Yap's like today. We asked Scott Fitzpatrick, and he said the stone money is actually still an important part of the culture there, and they even have a picture of stone money on their license plates. <laughs> and that totally destroyed my picture of Yap because then I realized, oh, license plates means they have cars. And uh, But then I thought, oh, you know, Yap still exists. Like, we could call Yap. We just need a phone number. <laughs> do I, so what do, I di- what do I dial? So. I mean, I just wrote down the area code. It's a protect. Just try dialing, you know, 91691. If that doesn't work, I'll go check it. And then somebody picked up the phone on the other end. Uh, hello? Hello. Hi. Who, who, who is this? Yeah, this is Terry. Uh, I'm working uh, with uh, James Lucan. So this is the, yeah. pres- this is the preserva- Historic Preservation Society on the island of Yap. Yes. That's very exciting for us. We're calling all the way from New York City. Yeah. Thank you for calling. This is Terry Brarai. She's yappies. And I felt like, hey, this is the island of paper money. We're calling the island of stone money. And she told us, not surprisingly, they are actually an island of paper money now. They actually use the U.S. dollar. Uh, but they still do have stone money as well. Her family has some. And she even personally has some that her grandfather gave her when she was a girl. They, they still have it around. Yes. Yes, we do. Where do you keep your stone money? Just uh, we laying around the house on a platform or there's some big, some small, some medium size. How big is it? Can you pick them up? Even the small one, I cannot lift it up. Oh, so it's heavy. Yeah, it cannot be fit in a wallet. <laughs> so, Jacob, the way she's describing it, uh, I was imagining it sort of like an, you know, just a piece of art they have around in the house. But she said there are times they actually still use it. If one of my brothers do something wrong and my father will take the stone money and go and make an uh, apology to the family, uh, my brother do wrong to them. And did this happen? Did this happen in your family? Y- yes. Might I ask, what, what had your brother done? Uh, if they go like when they got drunk, you know? They and got drunk. They make, uh, yeah. 
So Terry told us that her brother did something bad. It, it was a little hard to understand her, frankly, but it sounds like maybe there was a fight with another guy. And Terry's dad went over to the father of the other guy and gave him some stone money. Something to make it peace. Did, did it work? Did it create peace, giving the stone money? Yeah. Yeah. They do. Terry told us her father actually got a few guys to help carry the stone over to the other family's house. She says you don't always have to actually move stone money, but this time they did. I have never heard your language. Can you say a sentence? It means here is the stone money. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for calling, Anna. Thank you very much. Okay, okay. have a nice day. Okay, you too. You can see photos of stone money and find links to the Milton Friedman paper and to the book, The Island of Yap, on our blog. That's npr.org slash money. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening.